0: It was really about bringing innovative Australian research out of the university labs and into real applications.
1: thought we knew everything we wanted to know about human evolution, but there was this amazing discovery out of the tip of the pinky.
2: Do you think we have the ability to turn this around? So I thought, what are we going to do with an electrode you can tie in a
3: knot? Uh, Children are engaged, they're ready to learn, they're excited. It's not just about having more science, it's about doing the right things with that science.
1: And welcome to Can You Tell Me How? Powerful answers to urgent questions, a podcast series from the University of Wollongong. My name's Lizzie Jack.
2: And my name is William Verity.
1: And what are we hearing about today, William?
2: Fish. Fish Fish Today, um, which again, as with all of these episodes, is a much bigger, I mean, it actually is about the future of the planet as much as the future of fish. We are hearing about how a small unit on the innovation campus at the University of Wollongong is literally forming the future of our oceans, which are two thirds of the planet and particularly about how our research, which starts in tiny little villages in the Pacific, in Kiribati and these tiny Pacific nations, what we are learning from them, we are taking to the United Nations and we are using to create the very first treaty to conserve marine biodiversity, in other words, fish and other wildlife in Are high seas. So these are the oceans which are beyond national waters, which, as you can imagine, are a bit of a free for all. And the reason that this is so important is clearly important for Pacific nations who are reliant on the ocean and who are sinking because of climate change. But there are also the, the the ocean is absolutely crucial to climate change and our management of climate change. It's the biggest, as I understand it, anyway. It's the biggest carbon sink that we have. If we don't manage our oceans properly, we're all doomed.
1: Yeah, Okay. That's a bit terrifying. Thanks for that uh, vote of confidence there. Uh, Yeah, no, it sounds really interesting how how fish is going to determine the future of our planet.
2: So this one is called It's Not About Fish, It's About People.
1: Kiribati people are wonderful seafarers.
4: They have this inherent relationship with the sea. But they are now facing new threats, new modern threats.
2: Dr. Aurelie Deleal has spent large amounts of time with villagers in the South Pacific nation of Kiribati. Her goal? To find ways to safeguard the future of their vital fish stocks.
4: And so the Pathway program is really to look at collaboration, providing collaboration between the Pacific regional organization, the Pacific community, and also what other Pacific islands are learning, their knowledge at the community level of seeing firsthand what is happening to their fisheries resources and creating partnerships between government that might be facing financial and human capacity problems to service all communities and communities that might be wondering what capacity do I have to look after my fisheries resources sustainably.
2: Dr Dalil works for an organisation called ANCORS. That stands for the Australian National Centre Centre. ocean resources and security. It's situated on the Innovation Campus at the University of Wollongong. As we shall discover later, this small outfit of 20 academics on the Innovation Campus is on a mission to change the world, and it all starts with the villages of the South Pacific.
4: So it's actually looking at what they know, what has been lost, because many things through colonisation and changing laws and legislation, things that used to be done that was really about collective action have been kind of lost, but also methods that were used in the past might not respond well to new challenges. There are challenges of that big Population growth, new technology, and climate change. And it's trying to marry the traditional ecological knowledge that they have and recognize that knowledge as a building block on what we can do but also marrying it with western scientific knowledge and by combining those two and bringing people that come from the community the more island-wide institution and the government institution and creating those partnership between those different scales that is really relying on their existing institution but building also new Stronger institution that can face new challenges.
0: And
2: how optimistic are you for the, the health of the oceans and marine biodiversity into the future?
4: I think I would not be in this line of work if I thought that that was like really pessimist. I think by doing all these little initiatives, that combined momentum and combined initiative are actually a great way to change things for the better. And we see that all around the world people are getting together either for climate change or for better health. So I think all these combined initiatives at my level, with the work that we do in Kiribati, in Vanuatu, and Solomon Island, all together, actually, will make a little step towards protecting those fisheries
2: resources. So what are the lessons that we can learn from the South Pacific about addressing the crisis in our oceans, an area that covers two thirds of the planet?
4: we can learn how things work at a community level and might be replicable through understanding context and maybe um, providing lessons for a whole region in the pacific could that also provide uh, momentum for for the world i mean i'm not a dreamer to see that it's going to change tomorrow but i think that these are great initiatives in the steps and the next generation will take on and continue and hopefully we'll get um, good management in the, in the future.
2: So let's meet Associate Professor Quentin Hannock. He's the fisheries governance programme leader at ANCORES. Like many of his colleagues, he has a background that is both practical and academic.
0: So why I'm really keen on on Anchors and why I stay here is through our connections and our experience, we have an impact. Certainly what I find most interesting is engaging with stakeholders and helping stakeholders find solutions. And that to me is the impact that we have engages directly with policy challenges around the world it does groundbreaking research that isn't just focused on abstract journals or academic theories but really actually focuses on engaging with stakeholders governments industry non-government groups to identify governance challenges around the world and then work with those groups to find solutions. The capacity building work that we do and the training work that we do sets up governments and stakeholders to actually be able to better manage their own resources. Our programs work with officials from the Pacific Islands, from Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, Indian Ocean, Africa, to provide training to those government officials on the latest best practice in fisheries management and regulation.
2: Professor Hannock has worked for NGOs and governments and also in the South Pacific as a consultant providing strategic advice on how to sustainably manage fish stocks.
0: The Pacific is quite unusual in that the states have developed very strong, very collective approaches to regional management that is the envy of the world for many other areas. So the Pacific is, is really quite a great precedent for international fisheries management. And I guess those experiences have demonstrated the benefit of collective management. And then in the region, you've also got the ability to strengthen their management in the high seas through that kind of collective measure. And now that Japan is really stepping up too, there are some sort of natural synergies being developed.
2: We hear a lot of... Bad news about the oceans? Is it as bad as we think? What's your take on the way that we are managing our oceans at the moment? You put it in context of how we're
0: managing our land, and it's probably about equivalent. I mean, the reality at the moment is that with climate change and land clearing and all the various other activities that we're currently engaged with, I'd say that many of them are not managed particularly well. With oceans, it depends on where you are and where you're at. So, for example, There are some fisheries that are well managed around the world, but globally the status of fish stocks around the world is not good with the large majority of fisheries either overfished or being overfished or depleted from previous overfishing. So there's no shortage of work to try to address that. There are some good precedents being established, and I guess where I'm particularly interested at the moment is that Japan is starting to step up and become much, much more assertive on conservation and management. It's becoming more interested in developing stronger and stronger conservation and management rules to sustainably manage fish stocks, and I'm interested in that space. One of our postdocs who works closely with me, Harriet Hardin-Davies, is mostly in New York at the moment because she's heavily involved in a whole bunch of projects in New York at the UN and she's involved through those projects in the negotiation of the next iteration of a high seas biodiversity conservation treaty. And because of the networks that she's created and the way that we work together, she will be asked by government delegations for her advice and opinion on various matters as they come up in those negotiations.
3: I'm Harriet Harden-Davies. I'm Dr. Harriet (laughs) (laughs) Harden-Davies. Dr. Dr. Harriet Harden-Davies. Do people say that? Do they actually? I don't know. You earned it. I guess so.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Harriet Harden-Davies, Dr. Harriet Harden-Davies, she's had a passion for the oceans since she was a child growing up in England. What can the world learn from those those as you say big big ocean states in the pacific what can we learn from them and the way that they, they're doing things
3: so that's a really interesting point uh, in the context of these negotiations for life in the high sea in, in international waters that's currently going on we talk a lot about science and technology and innovation and knowledge and one of the key things that we're talking about at the UN at the moment is the role of scientific knowledge and having a science-based approach and one of the things that pacific have been arguing very strongly for and in my view very effectively is to recognise Recognize and and really pay heed to traditional knowledge. I'm going to give one really like tangible <laughs> example. I was in a, a workshop in Fiji a few months ago and we were talking about assessing impacts of different activities and an 18-year-old student from the, the university said, don't tell me that what happens out there in the high seas is not going to end up on my plate because I know that the ocean is connected. My My grandmother's told me about the ocean being connected. We know about this, this connectivity, and we know about how to incorporate understanding of that connectivity into policy approaches. And that's just one example of something which is really sort of fundamental and it's coming from a, a deep seated connection with the ocean and understanding of the connection of the ocean and people. And it's really challenging how we in developing a regime like this new treaty, how do we recognize different knowledge systems and how do we allow for for, for the viewpoints um, and the experiences of different communities in informing how we make decisions and how we implement them? One of my colleagues, again from a university in Fiji, said that I learn way more from being out there on the vaka the canoe, um, just learning from the traditions about the ocean and, and being out there and working with the community to see what's there. So it's about, I think, really seeing how we can build on those strengths understanding and how um, all can learn from that understanding of that connectivity with the ocean.
2: Dr. Harriet Harden-Davies is knowledgeable, down to earth. They're all qualities that she needs to help negotiate a treaty that will define the future health of our oceans, and therefore the very future of our planet. The irony here is it's actually not about fish, it's about people, isn't it? You deal with a whole heap of... People right from South Pacific villagers who have an intimate connection with the sea right through to government officials in New York. What are the skills that you need for your job?
3: The first one is is listening. I I think it's really it's really important to be able to listen to different viewpoints and try to understand the real message and the real need. First up I think it's listening and having an open mind because A lot of these dialogues and negotiations are built on long-term relationships and certainly relationship building and being able to have conversations with people from all different sectors and interests and walks of life I think is, is a really critical part of it. I
2: mean, you strike me as a naturally sort of positive person. Do you ever despair?
3: The honest answer is yes. (laughs) Um, I think I would have said no a couple of years ago. I do sometimes. Uh, It's hard not to. Every morning I want to see what's new and sometimes I don't because I don't want to see declining ice. I don't want to see declining populations Um, is, is the truth. However... I'm given so much hope when I have the opportunity to witness the negotiations for this treaty. People said it wasn't possible. Some people still think it's not going to happen or it won't be very useful. But the fact that we got here and are having these negotiations in the face of some very rocky geopolitical issues around the world there are some very real challenges happening but countries are talking about this it gives me hope. But the real thing that really gives me hope and I think is my, um antidote to despair is when I speak to my close colleagues and I'd say friends uh, in a number of uh, different delegations who I have the pleasure and privilege of interacting with at the United Nations and you understand the the very real values that drive these people uh, to promote this a really important historic treaty for environmental justice reasons, for social justice reasons. And so often I think it's the people behind the scenes that can drive and make these things happen. And even though sometimes I despair when I look at the big picture, thinking about the roles of these Mm. key people and the efforts that they're making uh, does give me hope.
2: Mm. Do you think we have the ability to turn this around in time?
3: (laughs) I'd I'd like to... (laughs) I'd be cautious and sort of defer to my scientific colleagues on whether or not that's even possible. My sense is that we are on damage limitation in terms of biodiversity loss. Uh, I think that that we can turn it around if we have the, not political will in a short term, but the political will that is sustained to do so to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to put in real lasting measures for climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation to be really bold and ambitious at the interlevel international level through things like the bbnj agreement to put in mechanisms and checks and balances that are going to safeguard the ocean for future generations and to use opportunities like the un decade of ocean science for sustainable development to really significantly increase our capacity to understand the ocean, to make informed decisions and to implement those decisions. It's not just about having more science, it's about doing the right things with that science. I think that, that we know what has to be done. And if we all try, and if we all encourage our governments and our industry partners to do that, then I think we can.
1: I think it's so important to hear how something like this is affecting people in these Pacific nations. I think it's easy for us, maybe as Australians, to ignore the issue even though you know there is that connectedness between the oceans and this is a, it's a world issue and
2: we ignore it at our peril as well i think i think one of the things that came out of that for me was harriet harden davies trying to negotiate a treaty with every single nation on earth because every single nation on earth has an interest in this whether they fish or they don't fish and that's the situation we're in that that's the crazy situation we're in is that so many of the issues that we're dealing with they're global issues and they require global agreement and we we actually can solve this the, the marine biodiversity we have everything that we need to solve it except long-term political will
1: i think also the the collaboration but like uh, harriet said about tying scientific knowledge with inherent traditional knowledge that's so important and so interesting and like I said something that we maybe don't think about as much
2: and maybe we should with our the oldest culture on earth yeah that's another
1: episode
2: (laughs) (laughs) so that's enough about fish but not enough about people what have we got next time
1: next time we are learning about how a single grain of sand changes the way we look at our history as humans which, yeah, oh, that's, a right. that's a big one. That's a big one. Another big one. Another big one. But, yeah, basically we're looking at what's called optical dating or luminescence dating. And it's, yeah, it's using a laser beam to analyse the dirt that a fossil is embedded in, basically, and then figuring out how old that dirt is to figure out how old the fossil is.
2: Okay, let's just hear a snippet from that.
1: If you think broadly about it, you would, you would have a discovery. People will have to find a site. Quite often that might be done through extensive surveys out on the landscape or in cave sites. Once you have that discovery, then you have a team of people that might have to prepare the site, the site gets excavated. If you have human fossils, you have to extract the fossils from the sediments or they're quite often cemented into really hard rock and people have to very carefully chisel them out. And then people like myself that's interested in determining the age of the fossil or the fossil bearing layer would be part of that team. For more information on this episode or others in the series, and to find out more about how UOW's research is solving society's biggest questions, visit stand.uow.edu.au.
2: And you may also want to check out the very first series of this podcast. It's called Can You Tell Me Why? And don't forget to review us wherever you get your podcasts. My name is William Verity.
1: My name's Lizzie Jack.
2: See you next time.